Welcome to the Black Cast. Joining me now is musician Robert Mason, whom you may know from Lynch Mob, spending more than a decade and change as the lead singer of Warrant, and also from The End Machine, who have a new album called Phase Two out this week, which uh, I'm excited to talk about. Uh, welcome to the show, Robert. Nice to, of you to take the time to chat. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, so uh, reading a, a little bit about you, you're uh, from New York originally, so I always like to know sort of what do you feel like musically you were exposed to that was, you know, maybe, you know, New York centric, where were the places where when you started going to shows, where were the places you started to see bands? You know, uh, I'm just sort of wondering about all that. Uh, my first arena experience was Madison square garden. Seeing yeah. Ringling brothers and Barnum and Bailey circuits at like two, three, four years old. So yeah. Then, you know, then you realize that, wow, they play music here too, not just have elephants and, <laughs> right. you know. So, yeah, I mean, seeing shows at the Garden growing up uh, in anywhere around the New York metro area, I moved out to the Burbs. My parents moved us out, moved, actually, before my brother or sister were born, just, just me, uh, out to the Burbs to, you know, make the better life, get out of the city, whole thing. But that just made me go right back into the city every chance I got. And obviously it was a place in the 80s, 90s for me musically as a mecca. That's where all the record companies were. Like if you're an East Coaster, you go to New York to try to go get a record deal and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I saw shows uh, all over. Every, every arena, all the clubs. I started playing in the clubs in my very early 20s, probably uh, straight away out in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, Connecticut, you know, uh, Manhattan. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, around the, the whole surrounding area, plus the clubs in the city. Let's see. But being, I guess getting influential, getting to see those, those bands in, uh, in a big concert setting back when you could do that. You remember like a year and a half ago and you could, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I also, I, I grew up uh, outside of New York city. So it was like, like 45 miles in, in orange County, uh, where we always said orange County out there. It's right where the suburbs started to get rural. So was, I, yeah, back then it was orange. Yeah, I know. But then I move out to California and everybody makes fun of me. So somehow it turns into orange and I'm just like, I just, I'm tired of getting laughed at. I also was like, well, I don't want my kids to grow up saying orange because, uh, but yeah. So, and you know, it was always like, it was a big deal. I mean, obviously the majority of the shows I would go to would be in the city, but if, if somebody came out and played at like the, the local fairgrounds or, you know, you get, there's a, there's a venue in Poughkeepsie called the chance, you know, and uh, right the best, yeah, right. And the best would be, you know, uh, for a long time, there was a great venue in Hoboken called Maxwell's. And it was like, oh, I don't I don't have to park in the city. You know, just the idea of like driving out because from where I was, it would take forever to take a train or a bus. It was just faster to drive. And so, yeah, you just definitely grow up. So it's like for me to go into the city, it was like this would be somebody I really like. You know, it has to be a big show, you know? Yeah, reserve that for, right, exactly. The marquee <laughs> acts are like, okay, I need to see this. We'll yeah. go see it, you know, whatever the, I mean, yeah. play Palladium. Every place there is to play, Limelight was one of the most amazing yeah. places because it was just a veritable freak show, cornucopia of humanity. And it was just like an insane. And you didn't, I mean, I've gone on stage for a show at the Limelight historically 
back when you were lower on the bill, you'd go on later, which is weird. Like Sunday nights was rock and roll church. Yeah, if yeah. You recall the whole limelight ethos was it was it's an old monastery and church. Yeah. And the pews are gone and you're, you know, you're performing at the altar, which is dancers hanging in cages, swinging <laughs> from the ceiling, every manner of, of you know, excess and abuse available to to humans was happening uh, at every given point like little rooms in the back were just the weird i mean i've yeah know. i mean there were there were there was like a there was like a foam room like look i was never anybody who was anybody so i never went to the playboy mansion but i did go to limelight and it was like there's a what room you know <laughs> <laughs> so it's a i i don't have any stories about the grotto but i do remember being in like yeah. you know the year, years before we all walked around with hand sanitizer in our pocket i'm like i don't think i should touch anything in here right. but so you would all also get you would yeah. also get to see some great bands there, you know, and it was, uh, yeah. it was, a, it was a really cool venue. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it reminded me just you talking about it. Um, I once saw uh, Chris Rock, the comedian perform at, a, at, at the chapel at Vassar college. Cause I, I went to Marist college in Poughkeepsie and mm -hmm. uh, it, halfway through his set, he's like, wait a minute, am I in a church? And everybody starts laughing. He's like, Oh, you think it's funny. You're, you're not the ones in a church talking like this, you know? Right, <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah but uh god I, I actually hadn't thought about limelight in a while because i know i mean it changed hands and then it closed and i'm pretty sure it's a gym now i have friends who live in new york and you know oh, yeah. that yeah it's like uh i don't even know if it's open right now but uh so you know i was uh i was reading you know uh i i, I don't even know if it was just a bio or an interview with you uh you know you talk about an influence on you and it's somebody that uh, Paul Stanley's always talked about Steve Marriott from humble pie. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's, it's not that uh, that's not somebody who's well known, but it's like, you know, people will always think about, you know, you think about uh, Robert Plant and, you know, other people of a similar era, but what was it specifically about Steve Marriott that you thought, I mean, just to you, was that like, Oh, that's, what a singer is that's what it should be or did you just love the band or what was it about steve marriott well the first if i can backtrack even further allow me a two second sure. yeah. here. tom jones oh yeah a little sure. on tv and my dad would turn me on to you know like oh bobby sit down watch this watch that you know it, it was the whole like mr Sin playing a record mr sinatra singing be very quiet just listen you know don't talk just you know as a little little kid uh tom jones had that unbelievable like presence, not just in a jumpsuit, but, you know, not just, <laughs> not just like women, but yeah. a growly voice. And he wasn't, he wasn't the, the straight crooner in that older sense, the older generation sense of what that would be. Uh, and I, I remember being influenced by that saying, wow, that guy, you know, not just commanding on stage and the whole Elvis Beatles thing, women throwing their, you know, clothes at him and stuff like that. But that guy's power, and I was just captivated. Steve Marriott had that same sort of thing. He had a very gritty voice. He had a theater background. He was like a child actor. Oh, wow. He had, kind of like Bon Scott did, that real strong, just couldn't give a rat's ass, but I'm here to like grab you metaphorically by the throat, audience, and you're going to believe me. And... He had that presence and such an incredibly strong voice. It wasn't operatic. It was blues and grit. And just, he sang, he sang as though he was hanging out on the thinnest limb of the tree, trying to break it. 
<laughs> you know, not safe in the tree going, yeah, I'm just singing to you. It's like, right. you know, people in the back row, like, like rock and the Fillmore. I mean, I have that album. I have that two or three copies of it that is sitting displayed right near my turntable right now. As we speak, I, I kid you not, I can go get it, but just trust me right there. <laughs> we'll trust you. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the greatest live records of all time. And I think I always, I gravitate towards singers that have a genuine, first off, blues-based. I get that. I, I understand that. Uh, emulating the the early soul and R&B and blues artists of the time from America, that's what all British guys were doing or trying to do, even the Beatles early on. Uh, and I think guys like him and Paul Rogers and Roger Daltrey just always yeah. just grabbed me very early on. And uh, so when you uh, start, you know, actually singing and, you know, becoming you know, just musically inclined, maybe just singing for fun, I mean, is is that sort of in your mind, like, this is what a, a singer should sound like? Because, I mean, I, I don't think you, you know, he's not somebody that I think of right away as like, you Steve Mary being somebody that you sound like. I mean, to me, it, it's it, especially listening to the new End Machine record that's when i i think that just sort of the the way that you use your voice a lot of times you know and i i don't i don't say this lightly to too many people it's it, it's almost like it, it can reach like the heights of like jeff tate like peak queensreich and i don't know how anybody can get way up there but uh what uh you know it, it's impressive uh but uh what uh how did you develop your style basically is it just like oh i like these songs i'm gonna kind of sing that way and and is there a point where you're like oh, i'm gonna do things a little bit differently because of what i'm comfortable with i think you're always early on you emulate or you oh can i sing this song or you know you start doing covers or whatever uh you stand, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say, you're, I'm, I'm a product of everything I listened to and everything I was touched by, struck by, uh, influenced by, I think those, I, the whole, I, I, I took, when I really decided to start singing and making money and, you know, hopefully using this as my, as my living, uh, I took lessons, but I wanted to learn. I figured, okay, opera singers, you know, you would go to your garden variety. You know, I went through a few different instructors and some really didn't want to deal with me because I wanted to be a rock guy and not wear a tux and sing in Italian or German or, you know, whatever traditional opera. Didn't want to go the, the opera school route, the Juilliard route, whatever. So it took me a minute to find an instructor who got it. And I figured the principles were the same. And I had this, I had a really high voice as, as I developed my speaking voice is lower than this, actually. I, I kind of raise it just a little bit to take strain off it. Uh, and I remember my first ear, nose and throat specialist. I mean, the guy that took my tonsils out, you know. <laughs> right, sure. Uh, me, looked at my throat when I started singing and I wasn't really singing correctly. I was just kind of fumbling, finding my way. But I've always sunk from the time I was, you know, really, really young. Uh, my dad sang a little, I mean, singing two-part harmony, three-part harmony with my parents on long car drives. Those are some of my earliest memories, having favorite songs. Before I understood the math of music theory, like piano or guitar or anything like that, I understood, I could hear all these harmony parts and could pick one out. So I was that kid. Uh, I wasn't pushed into it. I was the kid who sang all the hymns at the top of his lungs at church, you know, just because that was fun. 
uh, getting instruction from a teacher that understood what I want to do and condoned it, so to speak, encouraged it was probably pretty instrumental to me. I did covers for a long time. I, I you know, tried writing songs, worked with some original bands. I think you just eventually find your own voice. Every, they're like fingerprints and snowflakes. You know, they are unique. They're the, the people that can absolutely cop something else. I, I don't get that. I probably have a product of my influences in that way where you take little things, you know, I steal from the best, but uh, I guess you just find your own voice. I, I have a clear voice. I have a gritty voice. I found I've waited in both. Yeah. I'm not destroying my throat. I don't blow my throat out on the road. Uh, that was most important to me is, is being able to continue to do it. So, Right. And I would imagine like, unless you're very specifically, you know, the front man for a tribute act for one band, it doesn't actually do you any favors to try and sound exactly like somebody, you know, it's right. like, you visualize yourself in the market. Yeah. Right. It, exactly. It's like, if, if you sound, you know, yeah, exactly. If, if you, if you sound like 1986, Sammy Hagar, that's great. But what are you going to be able to sing? That isn't that, you know, that isn't, <laughs> that isn't, I can't drive 55 through the, you know, the early VH stuff. So <laughs> right. uh, I think to, you know, and I think that uh, it, that is the interesting thing because, you know, you'll, you'll see people who obviously, you know, start out in, you, you said you started in cover bands and people who are in tribute bands, a lot of times it's just a fun thing they do and they do have their own band, but yeah, they do sing a little differently as well, you know? So yeah, I think not pigeonholing yourself in that and uh, actually, you know, just having a style that like, yeah, well, this is how I sing. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's also at the same time, it's like, if, if you're out there covering, you know, a bunch of different songs, like, well, I don't want them to sound exactly like they do on the radio. Do I, you know? Right. And that's the, that's another one of that. That's a whole different part of the conversation there, Christian, with sure. audience's perception of how songs should sound. Now it happens through, you know, one of these yeah. low, practically lo-fi, you know, by real standards, uh, little digital bits and bytes, you know, uh, compressed and, and just stuffed into what will come through the, uh, the bandwidth of whatever you're listening through. And then, you know, that's what that sounds like. Uh, a live show should be different in my estimation, but people's perception and MTV when it came out and, you know, having a video representation of a song, uh, you know, you used to have to, I'm not lamenting, I'm not bitter about anything like that, but I am old enough to remember when you didn't know what a band really looked like or sounded like you'd wait till Saturday night live or like midnight special or something like that. Yeah. You'd see them live then you'd have to go, you have to actually purchase a ticket. I believe it was made of paper. You, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hand it to somebody. Uh, no, no, nobody scanned it. They had to rip it, and it like had your seat number stamped on it. You know, it was the, yeah. it was as low tech as it could have been. But yeah, uh, yeah. you see them live, and you, but you would expect a little difference, and and the the danger of seeing a band live, the the push and pull. Uh, that's lost on a lot of people who are not musicians. I understand that. And people want to be entertained. And I always thought that entertainers, frontmen, that were, I mean, the guy from early Black Oak, Arkansas, that David Lee Roth clearly saw and used a yeah. little bit of. I mean, maybe Dave won't admit to that. I don't know. But, you know, David Lee Roth, I, I stole a lot of stuff from Dave. Maria, like those guys are just powerful. And, and like I said earlier, 
metaphorically grab every audience member by the throat or by the hair or whatever. It's like, you will listen to me. You will bond together as a unified thing. When I say jump, you say how high. And it's not about power. Maybe it is. But it's, <laughs> but it's about wanting so badly to make everybody have such a great time and, uh, and feel and see and experience what I do when I do my job. I know that's part of my job. I don't right. stare at the shoes. I don't stand, I'm not artistically just staring out and, you know, emoting. I'm entertaining people and I run around and I will get a lot of my sweat on the people in the first few rows, you know, sorry. Yeah. Which, which uh, may or may not be a selling point in 2021. You know? Maybe not so much. Today. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I will probably end up, you know, hitting every member of my band with my mic stand sometime during the night. <laughs> Yeah, and and look, I think that uh, there are obviously there's there's bands whose sound kind of lends itself to the guys who kind of stare at their feet, and you know, like you know, uh, Jim Morrison notoriously with his stage fright, and he couldn't face the audience when he started. Like that stuff's all interesting, but when it's like, well, you know, you could, I don't know, you, you don't even have to talk to the audience too much, but I don't know, maybe maybe every once in a while. So yeah, I've always enjoyed people that they bring a show and not just like, all right, yeah, we're gonna we're going to play the songs that uh, that you know from the from the album and they're going to kind of sound the same and then uh, maybe we'll say thank you at the end you know it, it, it can be fun and look if we as the audience th the band doesn't have to be having fun on stage but if you make us think they are that's fine <laughs> that's almost as good really for us you know i mean somebody asked me to to be in a you know little dual bit in a couple of independent movies and some things throughout and you know it's like, but do you have any acting experiences? Well, I've pretended I'm having a great time on stage a few times when I'm having a really, really lousy one. <laughs> and that's part of my job. Like, the audience doesn't care that you have a sore throat. The audience doesn't care that you got no sleep or your plane was late or, you know, the bass player's being an asshole or like any, you know, any, I'm not pointing out any. Jerry yeah, Diggs is a really nice guy. Like, I'm, it could be any band member. Yeah. It could be me being a jerk that day. Like, but the audience deserves a great show. They spend their money. They pay your bills. I get to have what I have and do what I do because of people appreciating the music of whatever band I'm playing at that moment or whatever, you know, throughout my life doing this. So I owe them that. And I have so much fun on my side of the microphone. It's that during the course of the song, I hope that just singing the song and maybe like said a few words here and there and getting people to go along with me, basically that we're having a party right now, your problems, leave them, on the other side of, of the, of the, you know, venue door, come in, have fun. Your problems will be there when you come back. Uh, the real world will be there when you come back. It's a little bit of escapism. Yeah, for sure. And I, I've always loved that about bands that made me feel that. So I guess that's what I'm doing is just, you know, continuing that history with the traveling circus. You know, we go and fly into your town. We're here for a short period of time. Let's make the most of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, well, yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about the the end machine uh, mm -hmm. because you know it's uh, one of those things where people will call it you know a, a super group, but it's you've played with these guys before, you know. So it's like it's it, it, a mediocre group. 
<laughs> well, I did, I wouldn't say that because I think you know the the album is is super, but yeah, it's it, it's just a, it's a little bit of a misnomer because I, I don't know, like like the Traveling Wilburys, that was a super group to me because those guys don't play together, you right. know. <laughs> but well, yeah, uh, Orbison, so yeah, 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 that's true. It's like everybody else could have stayed home and they just could have had Roy, but uh, yeah, they, they uh, had, like, all lead singers and five rhythm guitar players. In that <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except well, they were, like Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty, and you know. Yeah, exactly. Like who stays? Yeah, who stays home? Yeah, who? Exactly. So, uh, when it comes to the end machine, though, I wanted to kind of talk about you know you've obviously over the last thirty years you've uh, worked with George Lynch in particular, and I think that uh, one I find him to be very entertaining anytime he's interviewed. Uh, you know, so he seems like a character, uh, but also I think that look he has a, a great reputation. I mean, the, you know, there aren't that many bands named after the guitar player, you know, I mean, uh, uh, obviously Van Halen and Vinnie Vincent invasion Lynch mob. I'm sure I could think of some more, but, you know, sure. but I do feel at the same time, he's somebody that I think that, you know, maybe doesn't come to mind for your more casual rock fan. And I don't know. I, I feel like he's underappreciated, but uh, maybe maybe that's just uh, from from my standpoint. So you've worked with him for a long time, and I'm just sort of wondering how you first got to know him, and you've worked with him, and then not worked with him, and then worked with him again. So I'm just sort of interested in uh, sort of the collaboration with George over what I believe is 30 years. Oh yeah, it's all of that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Lynch Mob was my first kind of big barbecue, as they say. Uh, I was on the East Coast, found out that they were auditioning, got an audition got the job, flew out to Arizona, started writing songs. So, I mean, that's the very short version of it. Uh, I had had a couple of little successes and kind of false starts on the East Coast, New York-based record company stuff, but then found out this band, Lynch Mom was auditioning and they needed a singer, uh, you know, put a record out, but had had whatever issues with the singer they had and needed to finish a tour and wanted to write a second record. So that happened for me pretty quickly in mid 91. And we made a record that I'm proud of those performances today and those songs, you know, I got to, got to write my first major label record that, you know, came out. I did, did one before that, it didn't come out. But uh, yeah, I mean, George spent a lot of time in a band named after the singer, you know, so. That's true, yeah. <laughs> And I think there was one of those natural things they couldn't think of a great name. I think that's the way he tells it. And the record company kind of forced Lynch Mob on him and he didn't like it. Now he doesn't like it because of, you know, implications of the, the verbiage. But well, well, yeah, now that, that I can understand. But I think in the moment, it's kind of a cool name, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, George Lynch, Lynch Mob. Come on, you know. Yeah, right. They write, yeah, these, you know, they write themselves, kids. Here you, yeah, you get you get what it is, but like you know, it's more like, hey, what's a docking anyway? You know, <laughs> right? It rhymes with rockin'. No. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. Good point. Well, that's again, that can't really be Don's last name. Come on, I've never asked him, but um, it's just too perfect. It doesn't happen like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, George and I did that uh, did that tour afterwards in '92, uh, supporting Warrant in arenas. So that's where that right. whole thing came from. But uh, as it happens, people want to do solo records. People don't get along as, as well. There's record company influence. And every time there's ego, art, and money all thrown together uh, and everybody talking in everybody else's ear in different camps, it, it 
sometimes can last a long time and sometimes does not. So that's what happened with Lynch Mob the first time around. Uh, funny enough, George, uh, when Anthony Esposito wanted to leave, George wanted to bring in Jeff Pilson. And at the time, this is 93, after our 92 tour, and we had a meeting, and I remember sitting around and George proposing that. And I thought, well, gosh, it's 93. All this Seattle stuff and grunge stuff has come out. The music industry is kind of weird. Boy, if you are Mick Brown and George and Jeff, and I like Jeff. I'd met Jeff pretty right when I met George, like you know, sure. through, through George. Uh, when we were making the Lishmont record, I think I first met Jeff Pilson. And I thought he was a great guy, and I know he's talented, and he's you know smart, and in lots of ways. And I thought to myself, well, gosh, that's in 1983, that's you stapling me onto Dawkin. And I said, why don't you get Don back and call it Dawkin? And the 27 year old me went <laughs> and yeah. went going back East, the hell with this thing. you know? Uh, so in hindsight, I don't know, we would have made a third Lynch bomb record with Jeff. So in yeah. a way, the end machine thing, when it came around, and that's where I'm going with this, was kind of closure for me. The first record we we built, it was purpose-built to sound different. We wanted it to be different. Uh, we were given the, the leeway to do that by Frontiers, the record company. And we wanted to show our influences, do stuff that we wanted, but we did not want to make it a carbon copy of Doc and our Lynch Mob, although it was going to sound a little bit like that in places. Sure. I don't know. If you're familiar with the first record, uh, we we wanted that to be its own animal because obviously the comparisons will be there before it came out. Everybody said, well, is it just Dokken because of the, the members? Is it just Dokken without Don? You know, that kind of thing. So, so I think we took a little time to do that um, and got a little more experimental with the first record. For this, for phase two, we went back to, I mean, there's a reason why that, chemistry between Jeff and George works and worked in the past. There's a reason why they've got that history uh, with the Doc and band. Mick no longer wanted to be involved when we respected that. I mean, he retired, really retired. Uh, so we got his younger brother, Steve. Yeah, which I, I thought was interesting. So, so Mick Brown, who had been the drummer in, in Doc, and he did the first one with you. And then you're just sort of reading uh, that. Yeah. He, so it's like, well, let's keep it in the family at least. And let's uh, let's have his brother. You know, it's 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 almost like we can and get the yeah, guy. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, uh, it's like, yeah, it's like Springsteen replaces Clarence Clemens with his nephew. You know, because it's like, well, at least it's in the fa and by the way, he's a tremendous sax player. So it's great. That's that, you know, it's just more like, yeah, let's well, let's look at that. Let's see how that works. So, uh, yeah. And I think it, uh, it it has a it has a great sound, uh, the, the second record. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that uh, the first one, I think, you know, had a little bit more of a, a bluesy hard rock sound. But I'm, I still feel like it, it's not like it's gone in this, you know, but uh, listening to it uh, a lot over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think I got into my head that uh, there were there were days where I'm like, well, I think it might be a, a concept album. And I'm like, no, I think the songs just all kind of have a unified theme. Uh, not even a theme, though, because that would be a concept album. It just has like a sound that's consistent. And I'm like, well, a lot of albums don't really kind of sound that way anymore. You know, look, a lot of times an album comes out because it's like, oh, yeah, we put out these three singles last year. And then we have an EP and then, you know, and it's just like, oh, we're gonna put a bunch of stuff out. But I think that maybe that's just what it was, was that it was a cohesive album. I mean, I think that there, there might be a couple of, 
themes that uh, sneak in and out of the songs. But uh, maybe I was reading too much into it, though. Well, no, and I'm glad you bring that up because uh, the Dokken philosophy, ethos, whatever you want to call it, it seemed as though the subject matter in a lot of those songs, you know, granted it was the early 80s, uh, and maybe that's what sold it. Everybody needed a power ballad. Everybody needed this and that, you know. But thematically, a lot of the stuff that was written between, I guess, Don and Jeff, mostly, I would imagine, uh, lyrically, was that, you know, I've, I've made the joke in the past, it's, uh, I listen to old Dawkins and it seems like Don's always having problems with his lady. You know, like, it was a lot of relationship gone sure. wrong kind of stuff, or, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. I, I really wanted to stay away from that. Yeah. Not that it's bad anyway, but but that would really lock it into a dated callback to the docking thing. And and although we did that musically, I know I know I think we just allowed ourselves, George and Jeff, musically mostly, because that's where the music, you know, the, that's where that things come from that in this band. They they send me instrumentals and then say, okay, what do you think? You know? And in the case of the first record, things were overwritten. There were parts that would appear way too many times, you know, for me. And I would kind of wrangle it in and say, okay, here's what I have as melody and lyric. This section's too long. And then the, the magic right. of digital editing, you know, Jeff and I would go into the studio and I was like, okay, this thing happens this many bars. Can we cut 16 bars of this out of here? Because it sounds like an opus. Like, you know, let's get the song if we can down to four minutes. Can we please, you know, from not whatever it is. And we would do that cut and paste thing. And then we would put, all that together, a bridge would kind of just happen between the two of us. I had, a, I had just reams and reams of lyrics in either an iPad or a Mac or my phone where throughout traveling around and you spend a lot of time in the quiet, you know, on airplanes and stuff like that, I would just write whatever I think or see or if you're reading a book or if you see a yeah. movie or you're walking in the mall or you're walking around some city, things come to me and I'll just put them down. Hopefully they're significant enough. Some are not. They're still on the phone. Some of them get made into songs. So I was allowed to do that. We we allowed ourselves to do that really freely on the first record. This record, we went a little bit more purpose-built to give fans, like certain audiences, I think, want Jeff and George to play those, you know, to to write songs, not so they all sound the same, and it's not a rehash of Dokken by any means. Like, none of us think that. But some of those things that the way George plays, it sounds like the way George plays in a lot of ways. I'm not going to try to pull him outside of his box. So some of these songs, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of the idea behind a few different Dawkins songs kind of melded it. It's like, well, let's write to that. Then we got on Zoom meetings because that's what you did, you know, through most of last year. And uh, the three of us, Jeff, George, and myself, would bat ideas around instead of just giving me free reign or, you know, hey, you just right. write melodies and lyrics. Because I know I want that combination of Jeff and George to give me little inspirations. And if, George, if either of them was thinking something lyrically, they might come up and say, hey, I've got this thing. And Jeff would send me a real quick uh, recording of just a, even just a chorus or just a bridge. And then I would take that and make, fill in the blank, so to speak. And we would do that through a lot of these meetings. So it's the three of us. And, uh, you know, I joked in something earlier, I was talking to somebody about, it. I was like, I even took suggestions for melodies from George. <laughs> he didn't lyric so much. No, but I'm kidding. Yeah. He's great. I know he's a smart guy and he, and he sure. reads a lot. He's got, he's got very passionate ideas, 
So if he brought me a theme, I'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Let me go write a, overwrite a boatload of lyrics about that and whittle it down to what our common ideas are. So this was a concerted effort among the three of us to do something that maybe satisfied the, uh, the, the doc and audiences that that legacy feel without sounding cheesy or dated. If I can use two really trite words to say that. I didn't, you know. No. Yeah. But I mean, I think that, uh, look, I mean, I think, uh, especially, you know, there are definitely, there's, there's plenty of bands who, you know, there are going to be a couple tracks on records from 25, 30 years ago that are like, Oh, that didn't hold up. But the rest of it, the rest of it does, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, look, you know, it's when you, when you listen to like on, on Sirius XM, there's a, there's a channel that's tailor made for uh, the, for late eighties uh, and early nineties, hard rock. And I think you'll hear some songs are like, Oh, these are great. These are still great. And then you hear some like, Oh boy, that takes me back. It's great to use, you know, have musicians collaborate who maybe have worked together for a long time. Like you're talking specifically George Lynch, Jeff Pilsen, but you don't want their compositions in 2021 to, to, you don't, you know, you can have the songs that are the nostalgia songs and then the songs that hold up, but you don't want your new songs to, to have that feeling, to have a modern feel from guys who you're like, Oh yeah, these guys are great. Uh, and, and having sort of uh, that sort of uh, approach, I think, is what really helps the, uh, the End Machine, the Phase 2 record. I'm happy to, uh, to find out. Let's see on, on April 9th when yes. everybody yeah. hopefully, you know, goes and, uh, and gets, you know, gets their ears around it and we'll see what happens. I and mean, we're hoping for the best. We always do. Sure. It's, you know, a lot of the, the thing about those songs is it's how you and the performances as well. It's. It's something you did that day. It's how you felt that moment. Sure. Uh, it's not, I don't, I don't write things thinking this is how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life or make us, you know, sometimes they're strong statements. Sure. But, and I can write in, in, you know, second in, in narrative form, you know, about something else. It's funny how fans attach themselves to songs. I understand why, because I've become attached to songs, but then I realized once I started doing this for a living that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, Peter Chris didn't feel like that great about Beth every day of his life. You know, like, yeah. you know, that's, uh, it's a funny thing that audience's perception of, of that. It's, you know, the thing they don't understand and I, and I don't blame them at all is that's just how I felt that day. That's the performance I gave that moment in the recording right. studio. I might be a completely different person with a different, you know, viewpoint, the next day, or it might not have even been about me. People come up to you, ask you about lyrics, and you're like, I was just telling a story. I don't really know. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. About a year ago, I spoke with uh, Dave Perner, the lead singer of Soul Asylum, and they have, oh, yeah. Yeah, they have a bunch of successful songs, but inarguably their most successful song is that song runaway train. And I, I kind of asked him about, you know, having one of those songs that you always have to play. And he's like, he's like, no, no I, I get it. But he actually lets the audience decide. He's like, do you guys want to hear Runaway Train or maybe you want to hear another one? And so he said, some nights they don't want to hear it. And he's like, well, great, because I don't need to hear it, you know? And right. I think that that's a great approach, you know, because. And, sure. uh, no, 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 and I, I agree. Uh, I laugh when bands have a hugely successful song and then they whine about having to play it for yeah. the rest of their lives. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but I understand it. It's by the time a song comes out, I've listening to the instrumental written lyrics and, and melodies to it, sung it bunches of times, recorded it in the studio. 
you know, reviewed mixes. So I've heard it thousands of times before anybody hears it for the first time. I'm always struck by yeah. someone's first impression of something. And then you go, oh, huh, yeah. you're all, I get re-inspired by it. And it's, it's nothing as gratifying as having somebody tell you they like what you do. Sure, why, yeah. You know, the first time I played a little song on the piano that, for my parents' friends and they clapped, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, short of getting, you know, cake or something like that, you know, wow. like when you're that little, I mean, it's yeah, cake. Well, but I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if they really liked the song, they'd give me cake. Uh, you know, you yeah. were talking about, uh, you know, sort of conferencing on Zoom. Obviously, that's how a lot of stuff was happening over the last year. Uh, did you guys uh, kind of exchange all the music that way? Or did you have a, an opportunity to get in the studio finally? Or how did it work in terms of, you know, this had to be a unique collaboration uh, compared to anything else you'd worked on before? Uh, Jeff and George, well, everybody's got a recording studio of sorts in their home. But we do. Yeah, I don't mean everybody in the collective, everybody, of course, but we do. <laughs> yeah. so, so we were able to work independently. Uh, as I did on the last record, I, I waited for George and Jeff's instrumentals to come pouring in via, you know, download or email or whatever, and listen to those and see how those hit me. Took a little time to do that. And then we just got on these meetings where we would, you know, bat these ideas around, like I said earlier, but eventually, yeah, I mean, Jeff's got a wonderful recording studio uh, near his place, just uh, north of LA. So with all this COVID stuff, I think the first time I flew out there, but, I, but after that I drove out, I think I did took three trips, two trips, a few days at a time. And Jeff and I, you know, have been isolated pretty much. We made sure we were COVID free and, and safe. Yeah, and sure. And we just got together and recorded just like we did the last time. You know, although this time I had a lot more prepared, I would go in for the last record, just having listened to an instrumental, not having sung anything to anybody. And Jeff and I work really well together. I would just, like I said, get into my phone, this is what I'm thinking melodically, lyrically. And I would send him, you know, airdrop him a bunch of stuff and we'd print it out and hash through it. And sometimes he said, this is amazing right here. We don't have to change a thing. I was like, well, I still need to change stuff. We would mock it up and do a, a rough scratch vocal uh, with both of us in the same room, you know, and then refine it a little further, figure out harmonies and all that stuff. I, we, between the two of us, we're very like-minded. Then I just get in the studio that day and I did that 11 times for the last record. And in 11 days, I had all the songs done. So wow. this, okay. this time around, and it would start with nothing but an instrumental track at the beginning right. and with all this done because I had all that backlog of lyrics and a working knowledge because I had heard them. I would listen to each one several times and kind of get an idea. First, a melodic idea or, or maybe just I've got lyrics as, ooh, this, I can make this fit kind of the Bernie Top and Elton John thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, we would just do it that way. This way I had a lot of predetermined stuff. I would demo stuff in my house and send it to them. And then, you know, from their instrumental after a Zoom meeting and some lyric, you know, I'd call them lyric writing arguments back and forth where we all try <laughs> to get our way. Um, yeah. They would leave me to my own devices and I would later on that day or the next day send them a very rough scratch version or versions of their instrumentals with what we had worked on, you know, lyric and melody wise. And more often than not, I would just hear back, Oh my God, you know, instantly George is like, that's the course. That's great. That's great. You know, 
because they would go on and on and I would put them on mute and walk away and like, you know, <laughs> refill my coffee mug or whatever. Come back. <laughs> right. Sure. And they're just, I can see them chatting in the background, but I've got the whole thing muted out and I'm just going, nah, 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 nah. I'm writing. <laughs> I, I would take the computer off mute and they'd still be talking about whatever lyrics or whatever. And I'd say, Hey, check your phones. I just texted you like all the lyrics for this song. I just wrote it while you guys were yammering on. With each other. <laughs> Uh, well, the the first uh, single, uh, Blood Money, there's a video for it. Now, uh, you know, similar sort of question, you know, we're at the point in the pandemic where I'm like, okay, so are they out in the field all kind of spaced out in the in the video <laughs> for social distancing or just because it looks cool, you know, because I'm are like, very yeah, perceptive. Yeah, because the video could, you know, if you, you could have shot that video three years ago and it still would have looked like that. But I'm like, oh, but they're pretty far apart, you know. Uh, but then there's, but then I also like that, of course, there's, there's also this kind of a, a cool narrative, like a, like a fight club uh, for money sort of a narrative that's going on at the same time, you know. So it's a little in, intercut. So uh, talk a little bit about the video. Well, uh, the themes for the video, we let Frontiers just run because they wanted to do that. Uh some of it was tied to the lyrics and some kind of isn't for my taste, but I totally understand it. Given the restrictions of filming and all the other stuff we had to do, yes, we did our parts on the same day, but separate from each other. Uh, okay. With, yeah. with a, a crew that had been tested and we were all fine and all that kind of stuff. But yes, we did. Uh, we filmed that out in Northern California, not too or Central California, not too far away from Jeff's house. Outdoors, I guess that was the determination. I mean, does that, you know, does that fit everything? No, but I, yeah, I, I kind of looks cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> and as you do in videos, you, you have to mime and lip sync and perform to the track. You're not doing this live, but uh, it was an interesting process. I think it was more of a nightmare for the director and editor because he couldn't get multiple band members in one shot because we, I guess it was determined that it was just safest to do that. I don't know. It was a few months ago. I was like, well, sure. What the heck? Not ideal, but, uh, but it worked out. Okay. And, uh, the blood and money video is interesting. Uh, and there, there's, there's, by the way, there was both blood and money in the video. I don't want to get too much wet. <laughs> that, was the, that was the frontiers idea. Yeah. I, I know. So like, oh, we can't, ju guys. we can't just have money. We need no. to have the blood. Too. All right. Well, you, know, you know what they say where there's blood, you know, and, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think I think my uh, my favorite song in the album uh, is "Crack the Sky," uh, no, which no one's asking, but I would say uh, that could be a good follow up single in the video if anybody does ask. Um, but it I, I think is. that that just got released. You are what? Wow! You should mention. <laughs> it, it, it it's almost as if I knew, but I swear I really didn't know. Uh, last Friday, I think they, they okay. Released, uh, yeah, "Crack the Sky," which is uh, filmed on the same day. Sure. I will, well, I will, uh, I will break the fourth wall. Tell the world. <laughs> this is you, you might you might recognize some of the woods, uh, <laughs> in a different location, but the same. Yeah, we we just kind of did them in one big, honest to god, super long day. Uh, and it's got a continuation on that theme, sort of related. But crack the skies. I like to leave mystery. I don't like when and a little ambiguity in the, in the lyrics uh so they could be interpreted in different ways it's although you try to come up with a with a story if that's the way you're writing uh or imagery with you know you try to make your own cliches so to speak i don't want to use yeah. too many cliches but you end up using a few and you know that's the way lyrics go in rock bands but uh but yeah i mean i don't i think oh i wore a 
Uh, spoiler alert! I changed my look. I put my I put my hair up in a hat for the for the crack the sky video. All right, well, then it, it, both of these the same day. <laughs> it clearly is going to look like a different day if your hair oh, is completely different. It's funny. Yeah. I, got, I would get messages or you know comments or text messages. Did you cut your hair? I'm like, it's a hat. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and it's interesting, it's interesting what you're saying about, uh, about lyrics. Cause a lot of times when, you know, when people who, you know, when any kind of lyricist uh, explains their lyrics, a lot of times you're like, no, I didn't think it was about that. Don't no, Don't ruin my song. No, you know? I don't, I don't mind anyone's interpretation. Honestly, yeah. it's interesting to find out in, you know, when you do meet and greets or you do interviews, talking to fans, uh, outside shows, stuff like that. Like they're so influenced by something and they get it completely different than your original intent or whatever inspired you with the lyrics. Or sometimes they'll just be so spot on. It's like, did you look at my, are you, are you looking at my journals on my phone? Like, <laughs> but then at least, you know, you're reaching them one way or the other. I love hearing people's interpretations, but I do like leaving certain things ambiguous enough so that other people can say, Oh, I felt like that. Or, Oh, I, I think I know what he's talking about. I saw that regardless of, what they think, you know, yeah. they're, how they're, they define the song to them. That's part of the fun of art and interpretation. Yeah. And, and not so much interpretation, but uh, the song Plastic Heroes has a turn of phrase that I really liked that uh, definitely stuck in my head, the dopamine parasites. Cause I feel like uh, that combination of phrase works really well. Cause it's like, I'm pretty sure we all have people that if you had the phrase in your head, like, oh yeah, they're a total dopamine parasite, you know? <laughs> I thankfully, yeah, words are my toys. Words are my playthings. <laughs> I love doing that. Uh, thank you. That means a lot because I, I wonder whether that really impacts people. But then a song like Plastic Heroes, that was one of the ones. George and Jeff were going on and on and they wanted it to be something else. I'm like, no, no, no. And then I can't think of it. I went to go refill and then throw like some lukewarm coffee in the microwave at my place. Right over there, folks. Right, right over there. <laughs> Went back into my office, studio office, which is adjacent to this room. This is the piano room. This is the piano, guitars, and amps. And then there's a there's a wall, but there's a common wall. And I have a panel, you know, like a circuit, a little electronic panel where I can hook in. I can mic stuff here and record it in there. So I walk back in there with a, with a big computer, it's a big screen and all. And I walk back, I take them off me, and I'm like, plastic heroes. And they go, oh, that's, oh, those are cool words. What's it about? I'm like, give me a minute. I've been writing. <laughs> Like, give me five. Yeah, I'll be right back. Seriously, thumb typing into my phone and sent them, I think, pre-chorus and chorus. And when they saw that, they're like, ooh, dopamine parasites. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So instantly Jeff got it. George loved it. So that's how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, just give me another pot of coffee and then uh, I'll have the lyrics for you, you know. That's it's... how Jeff and I operate, man. It's like first cup of coffee in the morning, you know, and that's how we roll into the studio and uh, and go create. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, obviously there's a, a lot of great songs on the album. We're talking about phase two and uh, both albums are on Frontiers Records. And uh, I think Frontiers is one of those labels that I think a lot of people who buy new music from any kind of classic artist, they don't necessarily even realize that they probably have some from Frontiers music, you know, and uh, I think that uh, they they put out so much, but I, I per personally, as just a fan of music, I appreciate it because I think a lot of you know I, mean, I don't even want to single anybody out, but there are there are definitely artists who, if Frontiers didn't put out their album, 
it wouldn't they wouldn't be doing new albums you know the, there's bands who could probably still do a greatest hits tour but not put out any kind of new albums and i think that frontiers puts out so much so i did like the idea that you know again to go with supergroup this was actually sort of their idea i guess uh, to put it, the band it, together, sort of right? was. it was initially something that georgian frontiers were talking about he was trying to figure out whether or not he wanted to have a cavalcade of you know names come in and sing on it or play on it or whatever i think very very early on it was just a, a conceptual thing with frontiers and george and then he got jeff involved because they're they live in the same state they're kind of neighbors and jeff's got a great recording studio he's a smart you know producer and they have history then they called me and said well what if would you be interested if it was me jeff and george and then we got mick i'm like well and that's when it became sort of closure for me, like making a third lynch mob record, so to speak. Uh, uh, but yeah, Frontiers is great with that, though. They they want to do that. They're very passionate about that. Not so much legacy. I guess it's legacy stuff, but but melodic rock. And they understand their market and how they can uh, serve those fans. And they do put out a lot of stuff. They put out a lot of great stuff, though. And they yeah, absolutely. They, dis they discover new artists too, but they do put they 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 have that you know like fantasy football kind of ethos. Where they'll go like, "What is this guy? Would play that guy and this guy, and then this guy can play drums." You know, like, right. Let's call them all and see what you know who will do it. Well, uh, yeah, so Phase 2 is the album, and it is out April 9th. Uh, you can always pre-order it now in a variety of different formats. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. I'm going to uh, try and take a couple more of your minutes, if you don't mind, because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, you've been the singer for Warrant for a number of years. And I think there's a couple of different ways that sometimes, you know, bands replace singer for a variety of reasons you can do and, and look i like i like that we know who let the dogs out no one let the dogs out but uh, <laughs> but uh the the idea because look you can do you can do what you can do he's what journey bananas, did you can hear him he's going bananas right now yeah he is yeah i don't know he did that door's open i don't know the other all he, the no he's just he, he just rather stay in you could do you know yeah. you could do what journey did and uh arnel pineda i i saw them perform with him he's amazing he is like, well, let's get a guy who's sort of what we were talking about before. Let's get a guy who sounds like Steve Perry. Doesn't look anything like him, uh, but let's do that. And I, I think that, you know, there's a there's another school of thought. You know, for a number of years, uh, Great White had uh, Terry Lou from XYZ, and that's a very different sound than uh, than than Jack had, than Jack Russell had. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like the guys in Warrant, it was a little bit more of, we know Robert, we know he's a great singer. Let's Let's work with him. And it wasn't like... Robert, can you sing like Janie Lane? Because at no point that any of the recordings I've ever heard, you don't sing like Janie. You 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 know you sing your own, you put your own stamp on his music. Oh my gosh, we're gonna fix this. Come take a walk with me. Come, come with Robert. Let's see the house. Let's see the walking. Oh, walk this is like a this is like an Aaron Sorkin show where you walk and talk throughout the house and and we you let can the dogs barely out. hear the dialogue because of all the you know somebody, yeah. you somehow hear it. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, so high maintenance. One-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback, who's just <laughs> well, a uh, Jacob in the in the chat appreciates the walkthrough uh, tour. Come here, bud. Come here. Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, yes. We're gonna finish this up, and then you and I are gonna go do something. My goodness. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, you know those guys look Warren. Uh, Warren guys have always been friends to, to me and to, to Lynch Mob. And, you know, my friendship with Janie was the reason why 
most of the reason why uh, initially it, uh, you know, Lynch Mob was supporting Warrant Arenas in 92. So when this came about, they needed a guy, uh, you know, I've talked ad nauseum in interviews about all that kind of stuff, but I think very early on, Jerry kind of pulled me aside and said, hey man, you write songs, right? It's like, yeah, I was like, yeah, why don't we do a record? Yeah. And uh, so they were never afraid of that. Of, uh, I mean, I'm Jay and I were friends. I was a fan. I like. He was a great songwriter, really good frontman, great singer. But right, we're different. Um, I have different influences. Some same, some different. I know we sound different. I went back to that. You know, voices are like fingerprints thing. I was never. I never felt pressure to to sing like him in any way. But the melodies of the songs. And the way those songs were arranged and, and performed, I do my damnedest to do that, to do that justice to the material and to the legacy. And fans have been really friendly to that, you know, and amenable to that whole, it's a pretty major change, you know? I mean, you think about it, Brian Johnson's still the new guy in ACDC, you know? <laughs> so, 40 years later, yeah. Right, he's the kid, he's the new kid. Yeah. Uh, so I understood the the weight of that, I guess, but was never really afraid of it uh, because I, I saw these, you know, these four guys, these other, you know, guys are the original members or whatever you want to call it. They're, you know, through the whole, all the success of that band, they needed a guy to go do that. And I'm a guy that could go do that. You know, uh, the songs are, I can sing them okay. And I do my damnedest. We've put out two records. We might do more. 2020 was the 30th anniversary of cherry pie right yeah not to, but, not to be not to lament that would be bitter but we're just going to take a mulligan on the entire thing i'm like nope it's still the 30th anniversary well, of cherry pie. and 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 that was one of the last things i wanted to talk to you about is that i saw that uh, warrant has 30th anniversary cherry pie dates uh and there's a there's a bunch of them booked there's even some booked in southern california and i'm like Oh, are we getting concerts again? You know, uh, in like July. In, at, uh, you we know. have dates from June through the end of the year, kind of like, yeah. but it's, you know, this has been a year and a half of your livelihood and your life and your what you're used to getting just basically removed. Nope, you got to stay at home. I mean, I know everybody's had to go through that, but uh, I think that when we get a little bit more confidence and now there's some promoters willing to distance and take the right precautions and take a chance uh, man, I, everything I hear is people just will come back and definitely want to uh, come back and rock out with a vengeance. And I know I will. I yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm I'm friends with a guy in the band, but uh, I drove like an hour and a half a couple weekends to go to see my my friends' uh, Kiss tribute band play in a parking lot in Lake Elsinore, California, which is like close to San Diego. And I'm like, wait, there's going to be music? It's outside. You know, it gets a little windy. Yeah, I'll be I'll be there. That's fine. You know, it's just the idea of seeing live music again for the first time in the year. And that's the thing about it being warmer. I think I'm assuming, you know, a bunch of the dates that Warren has lined up. Some of them are probably outdoor venues. Uh, and and I think that in general, that that's what people are probably most comfortable with. And then you have, you know, I mean, then you have bands who have like toured, you know, they do like seven dates in Florida and like nine dates in Texas, you know, because it's like well, you can really play a lot of places in, in those states, you know. And we have the same. We have... Uh... Texas shows, Colorado shows, and a lot of them are outdoors. Uh, a lot of our dates have moved forward one calendar year from 2020's dates. So 
I think in anticipation of what's hopefully starting to trend and happen now, um, a lot of these promoters that they wanted our, they wanted to keep our show. It was just the, the safest thing to do at the time was say, okay, well, it was July 24. Let's just make it July 2021. And yeah, <laughs> you know, thankfully, yeah. man, I will be the happiest guy in the world to stand on. Like I, like I always say, my side of a mic and have people on the other side. And if I have to, if there's a giant sneeze guard or whatever I have to do to say, you know, away from them uh, to make people feel safe, I still want people to have that live concert experience. Uh, you know, even if they're you know, these days, people don't clap because their one hand's got a phone in it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. How do I do this? You know? Yeah, I, you know. I, no, I, I would clap, but I'm busy making a video that I'm never going to watch. Right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> yes. I'm busy showing all my followers that I was actually here instead of being yeah. here, enjoying being here. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And look, I mean, just it, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, you're, you're starting to get reduced capacity at like sporting events and, and, and in yeah. movie theaters. And it's like, well, you know, you're gonna have to wear a mask. I'm like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll put on a welder's mask. I'll put on a scuba suit. Like, right. what do you what do you need? I'll do it when I show up. It's fine. You know, so uh, I, yeah, so I was excited to read that. And obviously, Warrant Rocks is the website. And uh, hopefully people can see that. So this, this is sort of a, it goes back to the end machine. And I'll, I'll let you in the I'll go after this. Uh, <laughs> it has to be so complicated to try and get End Machine to play any live dates. Now, I heard an interview with you uh, earlier, like about a month ago, you were on with Don Jameis. And I think you guys have played live shows, but not very many because everybody's got, you know, because you know, what Jeff's still in Foreigner, right? So obviously that's going to be job one for him, you know? So is there any hope that maybe you guys might find a window where you can do something or it's just same as it always is that uh, we'll play if we can, but we're, we're not holding our breath. That is, uh, as they used to say, the $64,000 question. I don't know what the money is up to now, but uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. we would love to, it takes a lot of work though. Uh, we'd need to rehearse. We'd need to get a crew together. We need to actually do it. And yeah, we did three shows the last time. I, I know Frontiers wanted us to go tour, but I had so many warrant dates. George's was, it was in, I think, four or six bands at the time and, you know, trying right. to lynch mob stuff in clinics and everything else he does. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jeff's the MD. He's a musical director in Foreigner. So he's, yeah. he's he wears a lot of hats. It was tough to do, and, it's, and it still is tough to do. I can't say no, but... Uh, it, a listening party, semi-acoustic performance thing was thrown around early on. Uh, we'd love to build some hype for this and play some of these songs. Uh, you know, and we've got the history to the degree that we can probably play a couple of Dawkins songs, play, you know, whatever. I'd love to go overseas with this. I'd love to take it to Japan and show those audiences uh, what the end machine is all about. And can we can do a couple of Lynch Mob, a couple of Dawkins songs. You know, we don't regret or or look down our nose at any of the history and the demand for that kind of stuff. I would gladly do that if that meant I got to play, you know, live, but warrants my gig. And when we go yeah. back to that, that's going to be, you know, getting on planes and flying out and playing shows uh, for most of the rest of this year. So we shall yeah. see. I, you know, we never say never, but it's a difficult proposition. Yeah. Well, you have to do the uh, the thirty first and a half anniversary of Cherry Pie, and then the thirty third <laughs> anniversary of Dirty Rotten, Filthy Stinking Rich. You know, so there's there's always going to be an anniversary 
uh, along the way. And by the way, uh, for what you were saying earlier for inflation, Jacob says the $64,000 question is now the $698,460.41 question. So thank you for that, Jacob. Uh, well, well you Robert, know, if, there, if, if there are four words that describe me, they are good with math. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, Robert, thank you so much for uh, being generous with your time and also giving us the walkthrough of your house. Uh, very excited uh, for people to hear the the new album, uh, The End Machine Phase 2. Uh, you can get it wherever you get albums, wherever you get your music digitally. And uh, I know there's a variety of, uh, of vinyl versions. So uh, people just, yeah. I, I guess that's just how you say it. It's like, just get it wherever you get your music, right? Exactly. You know, download it, get the limited edition vinyl. I'm going to have Frontiers really try to send me one of each. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, yeah, we, you're in the band, so you should be able to get the, the like, the Europe only, you know. One would, it, one would think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and, and uh, let's give a shout out to the dog. What's the dog's name? Rody. Rody. Well, and, yeah, and his, his crate command is backstage. Is backstage. <laughs> well, uh, Robert, Rody, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, the End Machine Phase 2. And uh, thank you to everybody who was in the live chat and watching the archive version. Make sure you like the Blackcast on Facebook, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T on Twitter. We will see you next time on the Blackcast. On Sirius XM, there's a there's a channel that's tailor made for uh, the for late 80s uh, and early 90s hard rock, and uh, they call it Hair Nation, which is something that, uh, in particular, I know uh, Eddie Trunk hates that term, and I think a lot of people find it, you know, upsetting. But that's sort of the catch-all for it. And I think you'll hear some songs. You're like, oh, these are great. These are still great. And then you hear some like, oh boy, that takes me back. So you don't want to write a song in 2021 that has the 
oh, that takes me back feel because it, it shouldn't be taking you back to anywhere other than right now, you know? So, I mean, I think that's just the the way that uh, that I see it uh, in, in terms of that. But uh, I think it, it has a very modern uh, sound, you know? Um, and uh, I think you might've frozen a little bit uh, there uh, video wise. So let me, uh, let me pop out Robert for a second for those that are watching the video and uh, we'll see if he uh, pops back in, but uh, always fun having these longer conversations. And uh, it was just an interesting thing because the, uh, there was a, a little pop out there. Yeah. And I think I lost him entirely, which is always fun. But uh, I think that uh, that always gives me the opportunity to vamp when I can point out that uh, if you're listening to the black cast, the audio version, you can of course go to the black cast YouTube page and find us uh, at the black cast on YouTube. That is uh, where we often are found <laughs> is the black cast YouTube page where I'm doing this live right now. And uh, also on Facebook and on Periscope and uh, hopefully uh, Robert's able to pop back on uh, before too long. You can like the black cast on Facebook, B L A D T C A S T blackcast.com. We have all of those things, you know, uh, that's, there's so many different ways to do it. For those of you that just get the uh, audio version of the old podcast, uh, we appreciate that as well. Uh, popping back on is uh, Robert Mason. We appreciate uh, you coming back and, Weird yeah, thing. I apologize for that. Just had one of those weird, like your internet went down and you're, I mean, I've like crazy fast, very efficient internet access here. And for some reason it just went bye-bye. Sorry about wow. that. Wow. Well, yeah, because I, I thought you were just sitting, like, listening with your arm kind of the way you are right now. And then I'm like, oh, no, that's a frozen image. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate you, uh, yeah, hopping back on uh, using the cell phone. Uh, so just sort of what I was talking about, it's, it's great to use, you know, have musicians collaborate who maybe have worked together for a long time, like you're talking specifically George Lynch, Jeff Pilson. But you don't want their compositions in 2021 to – to, you don't, you know, you can have the songs that are the nostalgia songs and then the songs that hold up, but you don't want your new songs to, to have that feeling. That's what I was saying, you know, so to have a modern feel from guys who you're like, oh yeah, these guys are great. Uh, and, and having sort of uh, that sort of uh, approach, I think is what really helps the, uh, the end machine, the phase two record. I'm happy to, uh, to find out. Let's see on, on April 9th. When yes. <laughs>